What a sweet time that was, exulting in the hope of the gospel, um, praising God for what he's done, um, exulting in the truths. We're going to continue doing that, continue to exalt in God, now through his word and, and through a close look at a few verses in the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn in them to Matthew chapter 8. And the text that I've taken today is the next text in, our, in Matthew. We're back in Matthew after a little break for Palm Sunday and Easter and the Judgment Conference. And we're only here for another um, couple weeks, this week and next, and, and then a break. So Matthew chapter 8 and our passage today that we'll be looking at is verses 23 through 27. And I'll read that for you now. So the Word of God says this. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Let's pray again. Oh Lord, we we know what sort of man Jesus was. We know what sort of God you are. You're a God who has astonishing authority, all authority over every atom. You have authority over us. You have authority over me and my life and my future. You have the kind of power and the kind of authority that ought to beckon faith in us. And I pray, we pray together this morning that you would do just that, beckon faith. Make faith arise in our hearts. And push back the fear that we so often feel. Many of us feel like our boats are swamped. Like the waves are high and the boat is tiny. Lord, I pray we would leave here trusting in you. Trusting in you for salvation, for that merit that now we own. That's now ours. But we did not do Christ has done it. I pray that that would be our, our faith as we leave here today, that we trust in the merit of Christ and what he has done on the cross for us. And we would leave here trusting in you and your direction for our lives and the trials that we face and the difficulties that in those storms we would, we would trust in you and not be fearful. So Father, I pray that you would work. And Lord, I, I, I know that I am not deserving of this awesome privilege that I have to stand in front of your people and proclaim your word to them. Not deserving, and I don't stand here in my own merit. But Lord, even in that, I pray that you would move through this time, move through my preaching. I pray that the sermon that is received in the heart is far better and far more reaching than the sermon that I have prepared and preached. Would you do that work through your spirit in us, through your word? Give us strong confidence in Christ today. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to, I put a, I, I put a, uh, an image on those bulletins that you were handed, um, or I had it put there, I didn't put it there, but um, it's, a, it's a painting. And I want to tell you three interesting facts about this painting. So we'll show it here. So um, I, I put this on my social media this week, and I asked people to tell me about it. And I think all of these came up in the comments on Instagram and, so, and, and Facebook. Um, but here, well, actually, I have three interesting facts to tell you about this, but I'm going to tell you two of them now, and I'll tell you one of them in a little while. So the first interesting observation about this painting was that it was painted by a, a famous, the, the most famous Dutch painter, Rembrandt, in, in, the, in, in 1633. And most call it the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. Um, so this is a painting meant to depict the story we're unpacking today in Matthew 8, 23 through 27. The people in the boat, as you can see, they're, they're frantic. They're Jesus' disciples. There's only one person calm. I don't know if you can see that, but one person calm there, and that is Jesus in the back of the boat. And he was just awakened by his frantic disciples, and he's about to calm these waves. Uh, this is actually Rembrandt's only seascape, and it's stunning. Um, at least to me, and it's realism. I feel like I'm on that ship with those guys. The second interesting observation, so the first one is written by Rembrandt. Second interesting observation I want to share with you today is that you cannot, unless you know something that, very, that a very small amount of people in this world know, you cannot see this painting today. Uh, not the original. Uh, that's because in 1990, it was stolen in the largest art heist in U.S. history. Uh, maybe the world, um, and no one except maybe the thieves know where it is today. So it was on display in Boston at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum when on March 18, 1990, two men dressed as police officers were able to convince the security team to let them in. It was a, like a low-paid security team. They, they weren't paying very great attention to security, so they let them in. These guards then tied them up and made off with this painting as well as 12 other works together valued at half a billion dollars. If you visit the Isabella Stewart Gardner Center today, this museum today, there's an empty frame where this painting once was. They, they, they left it on display, hoping that one day it'll be returned. And by the way, if you happen to know where that painting is, there's a $10 million reward being offered by the FBI for that information, so you're welcome. The third interesting observation I'll share with you in, in just a bit, but keep that in mind as we press in here. I, I don't know how this picture makes you feel. I did appreciate many of the comments that were left on my social media. I said, just tell me about this painting. And some people said things like, it reminds me that with Jesus, I can be calm even in the storms that I face in life. Another said, Jesus is my refuge in the storm. And yet another said, there are, these guys are about to ask the most important question anyone can ask. What sort of man is Jesus? Very good painting. It's helpful in light of the biblical narrative uh, that Rembrandt was basing it on. So what we have today before us is a true story. Matthew 8, 23 through 27 is meant to teach us to trust in Christ even in the midst of the storms that we face in life. It is meant to root out the unbelief that's in our hearts and arm us with truths about Jesus that help us have faith and to not fear. 
Faith, even when the boat is getting swamped by the waves. Faint, even when it feels like you have no hope. My aim this morning, and I believe it's the aim of this passage, is to build up your faith in Jesus Christ today. So let's do this. I'm going to open this coconut so that we can see inside and enjoy it. You know how to open a coconut? Do you know how to open a coconut? You good Nebraska people. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you, if you, just in case you're ever stuck in the sand hills and all you have is coconuts. So if you ever see it on TV, they always do it wrong. They're like banging it against the rock, you know, trying to get a hole in it or whatever. It never works that way. You take it, you hold it in your hand, you take the back of a machete and you hit it long ways and you turn it a little bit and you hit it and you turn it a little bit and then it cracks right in two and you can get at it. And that's what we're going to do with this passage. We're going to go all the way around it and make observations about the disciples. We're going to make observations about Jesus and then we're going to just press into this, crack it open and enjoy its fruit so that by eating this, our faith might be strengthened. So that's where we're going this morning. Since I had three interesting observations about the painting, even though I only told you two so far, maybe it'd be fitting to make three observations about the disciples and then three about Jesus. We're just going threes today. The first interesting observation about the disciples is in verse 23. The disciples were following Jesus. For a bit of context, back in verse 18, Matthew makes it clear that it was Jesus who ordered them to cross the Sea of Galilee. And here in verse 23, it is Jesus leading the way into this boat, right? The disciples are following Jesus. And just as an aside, because it comes up a couple times in this narrative, I'm going to bring it up a couple times in this sermon. I want to mention that many of the stories in Matthew chapter 8 are tied together. They're connected He, Matthew, the one who assembled this material, is purposely putting it together this way, and he often uses language that gives it away. It helps us to see that he has been purposeful in putting this together. One example of that is right here in verse 23. He could have just said that they all got into the boat, but instead Matthew seems to make a point of the fact that Jesus went in the boat first and the disciples followed him. And I think that is intended as a reminder of verse 19 When a scribe came to Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. Remember that? You may recall that sermon a few weeks ago. It was about the cost of following Christ. Here the disciples follow Jesus and although they don't know it yet, they are following him right into the storm. It's where they're going, where he's leading them. Don't miss that. This is where they are following Jesus. I think Matthew put it just that way to show us both the cost of following Jesus Jesus, the point that he's already introduced, and the necessary faith required as a follower of Christ. And that's what will play out in our passage. But that's just an aside. The the point I want to highlight is that the disciples are following Jesus. This, This entire event, it is not happenstance. It's not an accident. It's not a, just a random act of nature. Or a simple reaction to a surprising circumstance. Jesus is purposely leading these disciples right into a storm. The second observation about the disciples is more from like other passages that, you know, that, that kind of de- describe the disciples to us than it is about this one, but it's still very helpful and so I'll make it. Many of these disciples were very acquainted with both being on the sea and the Sea of Galilee. 
They, they were very well acquainted with boats and being out there and the dangers and all that stuff. Peter, for example, was a Galilean. He, he knew the Sea of Galilee very well and the notorious weather of that big lake. The sea, this sea, the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It's a big lake. And apparently storms have been known to rapidly develop. So it's really low, way below sea level. It's got higher mountains around it. And apparently because of that kind of combination, storms develop really quickly on that lake. And Peter and others would have known that. And they would have, they would have had a kind of respect for the sea and its dangers that only those who are well acquainted with it would have. You only gain that kind of respect for the sea when you have been on it and know what it's like in rough waters. So many years ago, five other men and I spent two days on a sailing raft on Lake Baikal, which is in Siberia. It's the largest freshwater lake in the world. Uh, the plan was to sail this boat from a village camp uh, to a camp that we were hosting. So we were sailing it. It was supposed to be a one-day trip. I had made the trip the year before, and it took me only eight hours. But this time it took me two days. And that's because we had contrary winds and rough water and had to take turns rowing. So this raft had oars that we were hoping not to use, but you had, you're hoping to use the wind, but we had to use the row. And we were just, five of us were just taking turns rowing. And so you'd row as hard as you could for a couple of minutes and then switch. And we did that the entire way. And uh, we weren't making good headway. Night came upon us and we had to camp. And so uh, we decided we'd make for this little island and we, we went for the island. And when we got on the island, we noticed that, uh, what looked like a roof. It was a fishing hut cabin thing. And we made ourselves at home in that cabin. These are crazy days. And made a little fire in the fireplace. It was actually kind of cozy. Um, the next morning, early in the morning, we took off because weather was still bad and getting worse. And about an hour into our trip, uh, one of the two oars broke right in half and it sunk in some mile deep lake. So that was it. So we were done. There's no limping back with one oar. And so we, we got to the shore and another guy and I grabbed our supplies and went hiking uh, for a fishing village that was about, I don't know, four or five miles away. And we, uh, we, went, we went door to door on this little fishing village. Everyone had a boat. Now, by this time, Baikal was getting kind of rough and we were knocking and asking, hey, we need a tow. We're wondering if you would be willing to tow us, uh, the sailing vessel that we have stranded over there, um, back to our camp. And everybody said the same thing. Sorry, I respect by call. That's what they would say. And they'd shut the door. And what they meant was they knew what Baikal was like when the storm was upon us and a storm was coming. And so they weren't willing to do it. The very last house we went to, because... The guy was willing. That's why it was the last house. But the very last house we went to, I found someone who respected 500 rubles more than he respected Baikal. <laughs> His speech was a little slurred and he walked a little funny, but you know what? He's had to be all right, right? So we risked it and we, a couple more stories I could tell you about that. Forgot to put the plug in his boat and I had to, sw anyway, uh, we made it alive. And I think that day I decided that I love the land a lot more than I love the sea. Like those fishermen, you know, in that fishing village who had respect, these ones knew well what it was like to be unsafe on the water. They had respect for the Sea of Galilee. They would know, for example, that a boat becoming swamped was a very unsafe thing. And they would also know that if they lost this vessel, surviving would be very difficult. They knew that. 
These men knew that. Now I'm saying that, I think it's helpful because the danger that they were facing was real and the fear was rational, at least on its face. Okay, we're gonna unpack why I think it was irrational fear, but on its face, these guys had every reason to be afraid. The third interesting observation is pretty obvious, but crucial to the point of our narrative. They were afraid. Jesus asked them, why are you afraid in verse 26? They were afraid. So I want you to keep these three things in mind as we continue to hit this coconut. The disciples were following Jesus on the sea by his command, by his will. And the disciples knew the sea, knew how dangerous storms like this were, and the disciples were afraid. Now, let me give you three things about Jesus, three observations about Jesus. First, Jesus had astonishing authority, astonishing authority. As I, as I mentioned a moment ago, I, I believe that Matthew has arranged this material very carefully to highlight certain themes for our good. One of those themes from the end of chapter seven and through all of chapter eight is Jesus's astonishing authority. We've seen this several times and I, I try to make a point of it every time. At the end of chapter seven, when Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, the people who heard the sermon were, as it says in Matthew 7, 28 through 29, astonished at his teaching, right? They were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching as one who had authority. And, and right on the heels of that, Matthew 8, 1 through 4, a leper approaches Jesus and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Like this leper was convinced of Jesus's authority over sickness by his word. Like if you just, if you will this to be, it will be. I will be cured. I'll be cleansed. And then the next story, you can find that in verses 5 through 13, 8, 5 through 13. The centurion talks candidly about Jesus' authority, even describing his own lim limited military authority as a way to compare Jesus' unlimited ability, his unlimited authority to, mere, to heal with a mere word. He could just command it, and this man's dying servant would live and be healed. Following that, Matthew's careful to make clear that Jesus commands demons with his word and these spiritual evil spirits opposed to God obey him. And then in our story, Jesus commands the wind and the sea and they instantly obey to the astonishment of everyone in the boat. Jesus has authority that we can barely comprehend. It is an astonishing authority and it is a key, it's a key point to this narrative. The second observation about Jesus is that he, unlike everyone else on the boat, is unafraid. He's asleep, in fact. You, you don't sleep when you're fearful. You, you don't sleep when you're fearful. It is our fears that keep us up at night, right? And here is Jesus asleep. Now, of course, that meant that he was tired. That showed his humanity. I think, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna really press into this today, but there, there's a, we see both his humanity and his deity in this passage, right? Like he needs to sleep. God doesn't need to sleep, right? Psalm 121.4 says that he doesn't sleep nor slumber. God doesn't need sleep, but Jesus needed sleep. And that's because in his humanity, in his incarnation, in, in, in humbling himself to become a man, he took on flesh and that flesh had weaknesses and that flesh needed to rest. He needed to sleep. 
It is man that needs to rest, not God. Our sleep, your sleep, when you sleep this afternoon in your recliner, it is a witness of your humanity that we are humans and that our human bodies have weaknesses. Jesus in in humbling himself in the incarnation had a real human body with real weaknesses and he needed to sleep. And and the deity part, I'm not gonna get into that too much right now, but it's, it's, it's his authority to command and waves and sea obey. I don't know about you, but bumpy airplane rides tend to rock me to sleep. It's a little bumpy, I go right to sleep. I've, I've flown enough to know it probably won't crash and so I just go to sleep. I don't know if that's what it was, if Jesus was being swayed by the waves to sleep. But I do know that everyone else on the ship, they were not thinking of sleep. They were not, like, they could. My guess, they were pretty tired too but they were not sleeping. And the reason why is because they were afraid. And the reason why they were afraid is because they believed they were perishing. Jesus is not afraid, he slept. The third observation about Jesus is what Jesus does when they came to him. And when they, when they said, save us, Lord. What does Jesus do when we come to him and we ask him to save us? He, he, he saves us. Jesus saves. The third observation drawn from our text is that Jesus saves. And that is really good news for us. Really good news for you, friend, if you have recognized your need to be saved. You can call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Jesus saves all those who call on him like that. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus lived his earthly life in perfect obedience to God And then he died as a substitute for sinners, paying for all the sin, the sin of all those who have disobeyed God but turned in faith to Jesus Christ. He lived, died, and rose again to save you. So one of the really good observations we cannot miss from this story is that they call out to Jesus, Lord, save us, and he in turn saves them. Jesus saves. So let's keep all of these observations in mind as we continue to hit this coconut. The disciples were following Jesus. They were experienced on the sea and they were afraid. And Jesus had astonishing authority. He was not afraid and he saves those who call on him. Those are all, those are all important as we seek for what this should mean for our lives. Now what I wanna do now with all those observations in place, is to consider Jesus' rebuke of the disciples for their fear. He says in verse 26, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? That phrase, O you of little faith, interesting, is one word in the Greek. It's kind of a compound word. We, we We don't have a one word equivalent for that in English, and so we get a whole sentence. O you of little faith. We We could have made a new compound word, Like I said, it's a compound word in Greek. We could say small faith ones or small faith peeps. I like that one, small faith peeps. Or we could just go with, oh, you have little faith. At first, I don't know about you, but I was a little taken back by the rebuke because they were coming asking Jesus to save them. And it seems to me to be an act of faith to come to Jesus and say, save me, right? But Jesus rebukes them for their small faith. And I think it is aimed 
not at them coming to him saying, save us, but at their fear. Not their coming to him, but their fearfulness. They were afraid of the storm and that was evidence that they were not trusting in God. Fear, just in general, is evidence, if it is not dealt with rightly, that we are not trusting in God. Fear and faith are not compatible. Fear means we're not trusting God. That's what fear means. Listen to David, the, the, the great king of Israel, um, as he shares the nature between faith and fear. This, this is from one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, David faced real, very real fears. And, and here's what he did with them. This is from Psalm 56, three and four. David said, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Don't you love that? Isn't that good? When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. What I love about this psalm is that David does not pretend to not be afraid. He doesn't pretend to have no fear. When the storm develops and the waves swamp his boat, he is afraid, but it is that fear that leads him to trust in God. He trusts in God and his word. And what is the result of that? He says, I shall not be afraid. So he goes from when I am afraid to I will not be afraid. And the bridge between those is faith in God and his word. He trusts in God and he knows and praises and, and therefore he is not afraid. The disciples, on the other hand, do not cross that bridge in this story. They are left on the fear side of things. They're not trusting in God. I can discern that from the other accounts. This is in all four of the gospels. I can, I can discern this from the other, the way that they're, it's written in the other gospels. They are coming to Jesus in absolute fear. And maybe it's because they knew the sea so well. Maybe, maybe that's why. Maybe a rational guy like Peter <laughs> uh, could l look around and think, like, I know how this works and this ship is not going to make it. They know how terrible storms like this are. They know the limits of wooden boats. And when the waves are way higher than they are and they're in the trough being swamped, maybe it's because they're making certain assumptions. In Mark's account of, their, uh, of this, their assumptions seem to be highlighted. Mark 4.38 says, but Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You see the assumptions there? There's two of them that they're making. God, you don't care about me. And we're perishing. Those are the assumptions. And we make those kinds of assumptions all the time. We, we say things just like that. We believe that God sometimes doesn't care about us. Like our circumstances get contrary and we think because of that, that's hard. I don't like that. That's not good for me. You must not care. You do not care. Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? If you did, this wouldn't be happening. Assumptions lead not to faith, but to fear. True faith is built not on the flimsiness and the fallibility of my assumptions about God and life and man, but on the certainty of God's word and on his absolute faithfulness to his promises. Faith rests on absoluteness. 
fear resides in the land of assumptions. You will only say, what can flesh do to me? Like what David said. When you know that your life and your, your, your well-being and your safety and all of that is in the hands of a faithful, good, sovereign God who works all things after the counsel of his will and who never breaks his promises. Never breaks his promises. Faith is rooted in rock-solid realities. Fear is rooted in flimsy assumptions. Now, as we know from the story, Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and the sea and instantly the wind stopped and the sea was still. So there's no doubt in the minds of these experienced sailors that this was a supernatural event. And I'm, I'm saying that because I, I want you to know that it's not, the wind didn't just, like the storm didn't just blow itself out or pass over. They would not, that, that kind of thing would not have caused the marveling that you see in verse 27. The men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So they could see his authority and they marveled. And these are the words that I, I think have like the, the, the clue that breaks open the coconut for us the, to the true faith that Matthew is after in this story. If you're reading the gospel of Matthew chapter eight, then you would have read verse 27, just one minute, if you're an average reader, after reading verses five through 13. And you would, you would note that many of the elements in that story are in this one. There is, and, and many of the words, there's marveling, there's authority, and the theme of faith in both of these stories. Back in that passage, the centurion so firmly believed in the authority of Christ that he believed Jesus could merely say a word and his dying servant would be made well. And Jesus marveled. Jesus was the one marveling. He marveled at his faith. Jesus was the one marveling in that story. The centurion saw Jesus' authority and Jesus then marveled at his faith. In our story, Jesus saw their unbelief. And then he showed them his authority and then they marveled. And because of that, I think that the deepest root of their unbelief was not merely their experience on that sea or even those faulty assumptions that they were making about perishing and whether Jesus cared about them. The taproot of their unbelief, which manifested itself in fear, is that they did not yet know who Jesus was. They did not yet know what that Roman centurion knew. The absolute astonishing authority of Christ. In other words, they were afraid they, because they didn't know who they were with yet. That's the root of their fear ultimately and it's right there in verse 27 when they asked that question what sort of man is this the Roman centurion knew he knew something they should have known they still did not know that Jesus is Lord of all they, they should have had faith not because Jesus could get up and rebuke the waves they should have had faith because they were with him period no matter what they were following Christ. He had ordered them to do what they were doing. He got into the boat first. He led them. They followed. They were with Jesus. He led them right into the storm. When the storm developed and their fear rose up in their hearts, they should have had faith because they were with Jesus. What a helpful lesson for me when storms of life come up. And they come up often, don't they? 
your boat probably feels swamped from time to time. You can respond in one of two ways. You can trust in God and believe that no matter what, you will find him trustworthy and good. You can say, like David said, what can man do to me? What can flesh do to me? What can sickness do to me? What can financial ruin do to me? What is the worst possible outcome? I mean, however you spin it, for these guys, for your own life, the very worst possible outcome of any circumstance is your death. But then Paul reminds us in Romans 8.38 that even death cannot separate us from the love of Christ. From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see, if we are with Jesus and we know who he is, we do not have to fear. We do not have to be anxious. We do not have to be racked. We don't have to stay up at night worrying. With all the questions that the storm poses for us, we are not alone. We are not, they were not alone. They were with Jesus. And if you are in him by faith today, you are as well. We can trust, you can trust in Christ no matter what. So I gave you three observations about the disciples and three observations about Jesus, but I only gave you two so far about that painting. So let's go back there again and make our third observation about that painting, the one that actually prompted me to include it in the sermon today. The third interesting observation about Rembrandt's painting is that you can make out the identity of not one, but two of the men aboard this ship. As I said, there is Jesus in the stern of the aft, the back part of the boat. He's the only one calm, so we can easily make him out. People are talking to him. I don't know if you can see it real well there, but people are talking to him. The others are frantically trying to keep the ship, ship upright. You see the guy at the top, the one guy's trying to hold on to the mast. They're all trying to keep the ship from breaking apart. There's one guy there. I don't know if you can see it real well in this painting, but he's, he's like leaning over the side of the ship. And I think I know what he's doing. He was one of the guys who wasn't used to being on the sea, probably. So, but you, you just know all those guys are his disciples who followed him on the ship. And then there's Jesus. But there's one more person that you can make out. If you zoom in on this photo, you can see it more clearly. There is one man on this also that you can see. See that guy with his hand on his head? Looking right at the camera, as it were. Do you see that? You can make him out because of the other, the other self-portraits that he painted. That's a 27-year-old Dutchman named Rembrandt. In his cleverness, this is a common thing to do, but in his cleverness, Rembrandt painted himself into this image. That guy in the blue, hand on his head, that's Rembrandt. And that's why I love this painting. Because Rembrandt did something very helpful that I think you and I should do today. He put himself on the boat in the storm with Jesus. I think that's what we should do today. Let's follow Jesus and get on this boat, feel the storm develop, feel like this ship is headed for disaster, and then learn to trust the one who has absolute authority over everything, over you personally, the one who is good, the one who is sovereign, the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. 
the one who loves you, the one who died on a cross to save you. Learn to trust the one who has this power. Paint yourself into this boat today, friends. And I don't just mean like put yourself there and imagine what it would have been like. I don't know that that's useful at all. I mean, put yourself there and imagine what it will be like, what it should be like in your next storm. The one that might be just just about to develop. And I think the choice is clear. I think this is all clear. We must learn to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, not only to save us from the future judgment of God. That's not all. The gospel is not just about saving you from the future judgment of God. You know that, right? The gospel is about life with Christ now and forever. Learn to trust in God. Learn to trust in Christ, our rock, the marvelous savior every day and through every storm. What storms are developing in your life today, friend? The very best way you can respond to this passage is to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in those fears, and trust in him. May God, by his grace, transform us from small faith peeps to people with marvelous faith and our marvelous savior. Let's pray. Father, I, I'm around a group of people who face a lot of the similar thing, a lot of similar things as those disciples face. They face dangers, they face trials, they face hurts and hardships, they face unknowns. They don't know where the ship is going sometimes, and they don't know why you have led them there. Lord, I pray today that you will work so powerfully and so mighty as to bring up faith in their hearts that they might see your power as you demonstrated it in this account. They might see you in this account and trust in you today. Help me, Father, to trust. Oh, may we not be fearful. What can man do to us? Lord, would you teach us to trust? In Jesus' name, amen.